One of the commitments of this church is that the teaching would be expository. We're committed to what we call expository preaching, meaning very simply a commitment to the biblical text, an explanation of the text verse by verse, and with that, the commitment that the expository teaching would be sequential. And so we follow one passage after another in the order that God has presented it. It makes life easy for me. I never have to wonder what to preach the next Sunday. It really is the next text in view. And that commitment means from time to time we see the Lord's providence, a certain text come up during the life of our church, and they fit so appropriately a season that we're in. And occasionally we see perhaps what we might say the, the humor of the Lord, and I think we find that today. It's somewhat incidental that the Sunday after Thanksgiving, <laughs> we consider fasting. I believe the Lord has something to say to all of us this morning. Now, the text itself comes in the flow of a unit within the Sermon on the Mount, wherein Jesus teaches about hypocrisy. If you remember, going back just a few weeks, Matthew 6, verse 5, begins a new unit within the sermon, and Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites, and he actually says that three times through three different examples. The unit actually begins back in 6.2 there. Giving, don't be like the hypocrites. Praying, don't be like the hypocrites. We then get a brief interlude, the so-called Lord's Prayer that we spent the last few weeks thinking about. But then he returns to the original lesson about hypocrisy with a third example namely fasting. And so this text here fits into that unit of teaching, three examples each time Jesus concerned that his disciples would not be hypocritical in their religious life. More broadly, this comes after a unit where Jesus teaches us what the religious life should look like. So most of chapter 5, Jesus is elevating the disciples' understanding of the righteousness required of them, beginning all the way back in 5.17, and there Jesus says, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, verse 20. And then the parallel statement towards the end of that unit, you need to be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. They're mirror statements of one another, not the same words, but the principle is the same in both. He's exhorting his disciples to a greater, higher standard of righteousness. Again, not in quantity, but in quality, in its essence. As if that were not enough, in chapter 6, Jesus then continues and says, there's more to think about, not simply what you are doing but how you're doing it. And this section here addresses the question of motive. Now, it does seem that Jesus just keeps laying down burdens for us, but they're by no means intended to be burdens. 
In fact, as Jesus teaches in this unit about our motives, he is intending to liberate us. To liberate us from a burden that we so often create for ourselves. There are many Christians who unnecessarily carry a burden that has come about through their desire for the praise of men. Many children of God who unnecessarily carry an almighty burden on their backs that emanates from a deep-seated desire to be affirmed and praised and accepted by others. And as Jesus teaches on motive, he wants to set you free from such burdens. And he does so by instructing us to seek a reward that comes from our Heavenly Father. As we seek the the reward that our loving Heavenly Father desires to give to us, then we do not need to seek the praise of men. That is Jesus' teaching here. And it's laid out very simply as he instructs us what not to do, what it is that we ought to do, and then how or why we should do it. That's the structure of this short text, what not to do, what we ought to do, and then the how or the why, and we'll work through it in that order, beginning with what not to do, verse 16. When you fast, Jesus says, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Now, here is one occasion where it would be appropriate to bring what we might term the application of the sermon all the way up to the front. So most ordinarily, I'll work through a text and try to explain the meaning of the text. And then once we've grasped its meaning, we think through how the text intersects with our lives. And we call that often application. It normally comes towards the end. This morning, it's appropriate to bring the application to the front because of the issue at hand. Jesus says, when you fast. As many have noted, he does not say, if you fast. Jesus says, when you fast, he communicates here an expectation that his disciples would fast. There's nothing in the text to suggest that his expectation is culturally bound. It's not an expectation that Jesus has of his disciples in the first century, but does not have of us today. If indeed he anticipates that his disciples would fast, he anticipates that of us today. And he speaks these words, the when, not an if, but a when, he speaks these words with a well-established precedent found in the Old Testament. You spend time in the Old Testament and you can't help but notice that the people of God are regularly fasting, occasionally instructed in accordance with the Torah, oftentimes voluntary, of their own volition. The fasts that we observe in the Old Testament come about for many different reasons, There are fasts associated with repentance. So in Joel chapter 2, the people are sinning and the prophet 
confronts the people over their sin and he tells them to wear sackcloth and ashes, their signs of mourning, and to consecrate a fast, to deny themselves food as part of their turning away from sin. He wants them to feel the severity of their sin so acutely. Don't eat as a means of acknowledging just how severe and grave are your offenses against God. Similarly, in Jonah chapter 3, we see Gentiles, the Ninevites, fasting of their own volition. They understood inherently the appropriateness of denying themselves food as an expression of repentance. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, we see fasts consecrated as part of a petition to God. In Esther chapter 4, Mordecai confronts Esther and says, you need to go and speak to the king on behalf of your people, the Jews. You're the only person that can do this. God has put you here at such a time to do this very thing. Esther says, I can't go unless the king summons me. Mordecai goes and says, you need to speak to the king. And she says to Mordecai, tell the people to fast. Tell them to go without food as part of their praying and seeking the Lord's face that he would be kind to me and deliver our people. And in the same vein, in Daniel chapter 6, the king fasts all night, petitioning for Daniel's deliverance as he's thrown into the den of lions. Elsewhere, we see fasting practiced as part of worship. In Luke chapter 2, a New Testament text certainly, but Anna, the prophetess, living as an Old Testament saint, the comment is made by Luke there that she was in the temple worshiping and praying and fasting. She is denying herself food as part of her joy in the Lord. Now, there are many other examples of fasting and some other reasons that we could survey this morning, but the point is there is a well-established precedent in the Old Testament of the people of God regularly choosing not to eat, to deny themselves their daily bread as part of their devotion to God. Fast forward to our present day, and now fasting is seldom practiced in the church. Seldom do the people of God fast corporately, seldom do they fast individually. Now that betrays on our part a level of foolishness. We're not heeding the testimony of history. It betrays a foolishness. The people of God have always fasted. They've always considered it to be an appropriate discipline as part of their devotion to the Lord. And now it's our turn. Now we're up. We're here in redemptive history and we choose not to. It betrays a foolishness to not listen to the voices that come to us from the past. It also betrays a lack of devotion to God. 
Again, think about the Old Testament examples. Fasting is part of repentance, and we choose not to. What does that say about how weighty we feel the burden of our sins? The Old Testament examples of fasting as part of petitioning, seeking to see the Lord's face in answered prayer, and we choose not to. What does that say about our desire to seek Him in prayer? The Old Testament example of people fasting even as part of their worship. And we choose not to. Our worship pales in comparison to those who have gone before us. Our failure to fast also speaks of a lack of affection for our Savior. Jesus doesn't talk often about fasting. The one other time in Matthew's Gospel is in chapter 9. Turn there just very briefly with me to see what else he has to say about this discipline, you most likely know the interaction well in verse 14 of Matthew 9. The disciples of John come to Jesus and they ask him, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So interestingly, here is a period within redemptive history where the disciples of the Lord Jesus are not fasting. And Jesus responds, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He's using an analogy. He there is the bridegroom and he says, this is a time of celebration because I am with my disciples. And for that reason, they're not fasting. However, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them then they will fast. Now just think about Jesus' response. He communicates an awful lot with very few words there. First of all, again, he is showing us his expectation that we, the people of God today, would be those who fast. We are in that era where the bridegroom is no longer with us. And Jesus said when he was bodily present here on earth, In that day when I am no longer with my people, they will fast. He expects that we would be fasting. And it also seems to open up the particular reason why we would fast. The bridegroom is no longer with us. And so we are desiring to see him again. We are mourning that he is not present And we desire to see him again. We understand that he's coming back and we so long for that day that we would deprive ourselves food as an expression of our hunger to see him. The New Testament act of fasting, in addition to the precedent already given to us by Old Testament saints, that of repenting and petitioning and even worship, in addition, there is a particular kind of fasting given to us in the New Testament that expresses an affection for Christ and a desire to see Him return. And so our perpetually full stomachs have an interesting way of dampening our love for Christ. They speak of our being very much at home with the world. 
We don't consider fasting necessary because we're so comfortable with the world. We don't desire to see Christ face to face. My encouragement to you this morning, the very beginning of our study in this text is simply to fast. To pursue the discipline of fasting. Now it's not for everyone. I wouldn't encourage an expecting mother, a nursing mother, the elderly or the sick necessarily to fast. There are seasons in your life when you won't fast and that's appropriate. There's no prescribed time period for which you should fast. There are examples of people fasting for a meal, for a day, or for many days. And you might ask the question, need it be a fast of food? Is that the only kind of self-denial that the Bible recognizes? And I think certainly there is a legitimate type of fasting that deprives oneself of other things... People today will readily embark upon a technology fast or a fast of sweet things. And they're valid, it's not wrong, but I want you to consider just how unique is the fast where you go without food altogether. To deny yourself technology is to deny yourself a luxury. Certainly, you can live without that. There is something unique about the fast of food to deny yourself the very thing that you need to live creates a particular, a particular kind of need and awareness of your need. And that need can so readily give voice to a desire that is spiritual in its nature. To deny yourself food is to lay hold of Jesus' words that he spoke to Satan when Satan tried to tempt him, turn these rocks into bread. Jesus was fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. And Satan tries to tempt him, the intense hunger in all of his humanity that he must have felt. And Jesus says, man does not live on bread alone. To go without food voluntarily, to deny yourself food, is to lay hold of that truth and to awaken within yourself the reality that you live based upon your relationship with God and not your relationship with with the dinner table. It is not the food before you that sustains you eternally. It is your relationship with Christ. And by fasting, you give voice to that desire. The people of God should fast. Fasting chastens our desire and our love for things of this world. At its very root, the most basic necessity you have each day is to eat. To deny yourself that chastens your love for things of this world that are fleeting and temporary. 
and it gives rise to and enlarges your affections for spiritual, eternal realities. Now, as I exhort you to fast, to consider this discipline, and if it has been lacking in your Christian life, how might you start to now pursue it as I encourage you towards this? I understand I am leading you to a very dangerous place. The reason I say that is the same reason that Jesus spoke these words. It is dangerous to fast. I'm not talking about a physical danger. There is a spiritual danger when you fast. And the spiritual danger is that you would so manipulate your fasting in order to receive praise from men. It's the same principle that Jesus spoke of earlier in the chapter when he talked of giving to the needy and praying. We are prone to so manipulate our righteous deeds in order to receive praise from others. It is the question of motive that makes it inherently dangerous. The sermon on the first two examples was titled The Danger of Righteous Living. It's not enough to simply obey the words of Christ in your actions. You need to constantly examine your motives. Jesus says in verse 16, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. The hypocrites would go around putting on full display the reality of their fast. They weren't concealing any physical pain that they were feeling through hunger. They were letting others know about it so as to receive the praise of men. And there is a wonderful wordplay inherent to the original text here in verse 16 that's worth drawing out when the text reads, they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen. More literally, the verb there is to hide. It's the same verb to be seen in a negative sense. They, They hide their faces so that their fasting may not be hidden. And the subtle nature of that wordplay shows to us just how subtle is the hypocrisy that Jesus is speaking of. You see, the hypocrisy in view here is not the kind of hypocrisy that we most readily think of when you read about the hypocrites of Jesus' day. When you think about hypocrisy today, you most usually think about words not matching up with actions. So when you disciple someone, There should be discipleship happening all over the church. People seeking to sharpen their brother and sister in Christ, having a positive influence in their life. When you disciple others, the hypocrisy we most ordinarily think of is one wherein you would say, prayer is a really important part of the Christian life. Be sure to pray this week, and I'm going to hold you accountable to it next Sunday when I see you. And then the whole week passes by and you yourself don't seek the Lord's face one time in prayer. That's hypocrisy. 
Or you say to the young disciple, evangelism is so important in the Christian life, you need to be proclaiming the gospel to all who would listen. And then you sit next to the stranger on the plane and they ask you, what are you doing this weekend? And you neglect to mention church. You don't take the opportunity that might lead to an articulation of the gospel. That's hypocrisy. That's how we most ordinarily think of hypocrisy, a mismatch between our words and our actions. That's not the kind of hypocrisy here in verse 16. Here, this is far more subtle and therefore far more dangerous. It is a kind of hypocrisy where our words match exactly our actions. It's the kind of hypocrisy that says you should give to the poor and then you give to the poor. It's the kind of hypocrisy that says praying is really important and then you pray. It's the kind of hypocrisy that says you ought to fast and then you do indeed deprive yourself of food. But it is hypocritical because you parade that righteous deed as if it were for God, as if it were pursued for His pleasure, for devotion to Him, and in reality you pursue it for the praise of men. It is so much more subtle and for that reason so much more dangerous and it sits within each of us. We each have a tendency to this very kind of hypocrisy. Why? Because as we noted before, we all desperately desire to be affirmed by others. We all desperately desire to be affirmed and accepted and praised by men. There is an essay that C.S. Lewis wrote that I return to often. It's labeled The Inner Ring. It's so probing. In that essay, C.S. Lewis observes this desire in all of us. And he says, wherever you go in life, there is an inner ring, an inner circle. There is this exclusive club, be it in the workplace, or God forbid, in the church. In society, there's always this perceived inner ring. And he says, man will do just about anything to get himself in it. He so desperately wants to be affirmed and celebrated by others. He will compromise on his beliefs. He will say that which he does not believe. He will do that which he does not believe to be right if it just means he gets accepted. And that desire sits so deep within us and it will make that may very well lead us to the kind of hypocrisy that Jesus is speaking of here, whereby we use our righteous deeds that Scripture exhorts us towards pursuing a life of devotion to God, we would so manipulate those deeds in order to receive the praise of men. And the tragedy of this kind of hypocrisy is that it is rewarded exactly in accordance with its desires. The tragedy of the hypocrisy that Jesus speaks of here is that it gets rewarded exactly in accordance with its desires. Meaning, you receive the praise of men. 
The reason it is a tragedy for you to receive the praise of men is because then you have no reward when you enter into glory. As Jesus taught previously, you have your reward in full. You wanted the praise of men, you received it, and now there is no reward for you in glory. You see, in these three examples, the justice of God is very much put on display. Our God is a just God. On the final day, when he renders judgment, there is not one person that could possibly say, you have been unfair. This applies to both the unbeliever and the believer. For the unbeliever, on the last day, God will render them judgment in accordance with their sins. And they will not be let into glory. Why? Because you didn't seek to honor Christ during your earthly life. You had no desire for him. You showed absolutely no desire to be with Christ in your earthly life. So I am now going to give you in accordance with your desires. You never wanted to be with Christ then. So you won't be with Christ now. And in a similar way, the same principle applies to the believer. We will be rewarded in heaven for our righteous deeds. But if those righteous deeds were not pursued for the reward of the Father, then we won't get a reward from the Father. To be clear, we enter into glory only based upon the blood of Christ. The rewards that God will give us has absolutely nothing to do with our being present in glory. We enter into glory only based on the sin-atoning worth of Christ. You put your faith in Him, your sins are forgiven, God credits to you righteousness, and now you may enter. But in addition, He is willing and desiring to reward you for all the good you have done as a Christian. But if you did good as a Christian For the praise of men, you've received your reward. And God, being a just God, being a fair God, will not reward you for those acts of righteousness. Considering verse 16 alone, there is much value in you preaching to yourself the fleeting emptiness of the praise of men. As you consider Jesus' warning here, His instruction, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites do. They disfigure their faces. Why do they disfigure their faces? In order to be seen, preach to yourself how fleeting is the praise of men. Remind your heart daily how Empty is the praise of men. Your flesh doesn't want you to believe it. On a daily basis, your flesh is encouraging you to live a life before others for the praise of men. And you must preach to yourself the fleeting value of the praise of men, the emptiness of the praise of men, to fight the fight against the inclination to be a hypocrite. 
And then you may pursue righteousness in the way that Jesus taught. Verse 17. Don't be like a hypocrite. Don't disfigure your face. Verse 17. But when you fast, this is what you ought to do. Anoint your head and wash your face. Anoint your head and wash your face. At a very simple level, Jesus is saying, hide any physical discomfort you feel by virtue of your fast. Cover it up. Don't let people see it. Don't make an effort to put it on display. Don't use your physical discomfort and any signs that come with that as a way of getting the praise of others. So wash your face and anoint your head with oil so people can't even tell you're fasting. And certainly, these would be instructions that are unique to the time in which Jesus is teaching. Today, we typically don't anoint our heads with oil as a way of showing our health or our well-being, but the principle still applies. Think through ways in which you can keep your fasting hidden. Very practically, I would encourage people to plan their fast on a quiet day. Don't plan your fast on a day when you know you'll be interacting with many people, you'll be in many meetings. Hey, did I mention to you that I'm fasting today? <laughs> Pick a quiet day. You're just denying yourself the opportunity to use your discomfort to get the praise of men. But I think there is slightly more to Jesus' instruction than simply covering up the discomfort. Think about the three examples he gives. It's interesting the first two examples are of doing something, and Jesus' exhortation there was very much do it in secret. When you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Do it in secret. When you pray, shut yourself in a room and do it in secret. When we get to the example of fasting, he doesn't say, when you fast, do it in secret. He actually says, anoint your head with oil. It's a subtly different but ever so important shift from the way in which to guard yourselves from seeking the praise of men. Anoint your head with oil. And I think what Jesus is doing here is leading us yet further in our understanding of what fasting is. Which is to say Jesus wants us to understand the joyfulness of fasting. Or more broadly, the joyfulness inherent to the religious life. J.C. Ryle made comment on this very verse speaking about the joy in which we are to conduct ourselves as Christians at all times. Let us learn, he says, from our Lord's instruction about fasting. Let us learn the great importance of cheerfulness in our religion. Those words, anoint thy head and wash thy face, are full of deep meaning. They should teach us to aim at letting men see that we find Christianity makes us happy. Never let us forget that there is not religion in looking melancholy and gloomy. Are we dissatisfied with Christ's wages 
and Christ's service? Surely not. Then let us not look as if we were. I knew a pastor once who had a man in his congregation who was always melancholy, always gloomy. And one day the pastor said to him, does Jesus make you happy? He was confused. He was taken aback. And he said, of course. The pastor said, try telling your face that. (laughs) We're supposed to be joyful in our religion. And so as Jesus teaches us how to how to write our motives in the fast, how to make sure our motives are correct. He doesn't say, interestingly, hide yourself, but rather anoint your head with oil. Project to all those who would see the joyfulness of your religion. And with that, I would say the joyfulness that can come through denying yourself the joy that is obtainable in your fasting. Jesus is not teaching us to be deceitful here. Is there physical discomfort that comes from denying yourself food? Undoubtedly. But there is available a spiritual joy that you will not find for as long as your stomachs are full. Again, the text in Matthew 9 is so instructive as Jesus says that there will come a day when my disciples will fast, when the bridegroom is not with them. Jesus does not intend that for as long as we wait for him, we would be gloomy and melancholy. But Jesus understands that as we fast in this time waiting for his glorious appearance, we are sad, we are somber that he's not with us at the same time. In a wonderful way, we are joy-filled in our fasting, in our waiting. Why? Because we know that He is coming back. Our fasting is informed by a biblical hope. And so we deny ourselves readily, chastening our desires and our love and our affections for the world, enlarging a desire for Christ Himself, and we do so joyfully. Because we know one day we will be satisfied. Jesus instructs us, don't be gloomy, but anoint your head with oil. Don't let them see that you're fasting. And even more than that, be joy filled as you wait for my return. As you think about fasting in your life, consider the joy that is available to you in this Discipline. Spurgeon said, Our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle have been high days indeed. Notice there, he seems to be referring to a corporate fast, a corporate fasting that was practiced by the church there in London. Our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle have been high days indeed. Never has heaven's gate stood wider. Never have our hearts been nearer the central glory. Consider the joy that is available to you as you deny yourself 
and anticipate Christ's return. And this then leads to the motive, the how. How is it that we can ensure in our righteous deeds, in our religious practices, that our motives are right and we're guarding ourselves from that deep-seated desire to receive the praise of men, Jesus says in verse 18, so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but it would be seen by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The concept of a reward is prevalent in this whole section. In the Sermon on the Mount, ten times Jesus speaks of a reward. And if I can summarize his teaching, the way in which we ensure our motives are right, we keep our motives right before God, is by apprehending the Father with eyes of faith, we, we daily, with eyes of faith, look to our heavenly Father and believe upon His desire to richly reward us. Jesus is teaching that with eyes of faith, we daily look to our Father and believe upon His desire to richly reward us. Now, every part of that equation is important. First of all, it has to be with eyes of faith. It has to be with eyes of faith because we do not see the Father. We don't see Him. Jesus is no longer with us bodily on earth, nor do we see the heavenly reward. So this has to be with eyes of faith. Your fasting must be fueled by faith. If it is not, don't fast. Don't fast because I guarantee your motive will not be right. The discomfort, the physical discomfort is too great to keep your motive right unless it is being fueled by faith. If you are here this morning and you don't have that faith in Christ, you have never exercised, never been granted, never given voice to a faith in Christ as your Savior. You can't fast in this manner. And I would plead with you to speak to someone today. If you're a Christian, you still need to ensure that your fasting is not done in your own strength. It has to be from faith. And it is a faith here that is directed towards the Father. Now this is so important. Jesus doesn't say God. Our Father is God, but He doesn't say so that your fasting would be seen by God. He says so that it would be seen by your Father. And you'll remember as we've been working through the Lord's Prayer just how central that idea is to this whole passage. I wonder if you considered why Jesus interrupts His teaching on hypocrisy. I struggled with it. The first example, giving to the needy. Second example, praying. And now I'm ready for the third example, fasting. But he, he stops. If I'd been preaching this sermon, I would have given all three examples as one. 
But Jesus curiously gives two examples and then he stops and then he talks about prayer. He gives the Lord's Prayer and then he comes back to the third example. Why does he do that? And certainly in part, I do think it is that as he was speaking about hypocritical prayer, he had more to say on that topic and he said, now let me teach you more about prayer. But I also think the theology that he gives us in the Lord's Prayer is intended to inform our understanding of the lessons about hypocrisy. Consider with me just again the the change in those who are in view in each case. In verse 2 of chapter 6, don't be like the hypocrites. In verse 5, do not be like the hypocrites. In our passage today, don't be like the hypocrites. At the Lord's Prayer, don't be like the Gentiles. And that shift is so important because as we considered last week and the previous week, the Gentiles do not know if their God will listen to them. Don't pray like them because they're praying out of their own efforts to try and win the affections of their God. You are a child. Of a loving heavenly father. He listens to you. He loves you. And he desires to reward you. If I can put it like this. The way in which you can ensure you are not a hypocrite. Is to remember that you are not a Gentile. You can pursue your righteous deeds. Not like the hypocrites do. Why? Because I am a child of God. And I know that my Father is for me. He is for me and He loves me and He has a reward that He desires to give to me. And that then introduces the last part of His teaching, the reward. You do your deeds with your eyes set in faith towards your Father who wishes to reward you. Now, I know that many Christians struggle with the concept of being rewarded when they get to glory. You don't deserve to be there. Far less to be rewarded. And there's a sense in which that inadequacy is born out of a healthy theology of just how sinful we are. I'm only saved by His grace. I'm only going to glory because of His grace. Why then could I possibly stand in glory and be rewarded? But it is such a biblical concept, not just here in Matthew 6, but all the way through the New Testament, the writers speak about a heavenly reward. And it is entirely appropriate that the notion of a heavenly reward would be for us a motivation towards righteousness and right motives today. That's a biblical concept. And I think what is required on our part is to better grasp who it is that is giving the reward and what is the nature of the reward. When you get to glory, it is your Father that will reward you. He gifted you salvation. Ephesians 2 teaches us that then, 
He set good works before you that he prepared beforehand for you to walk in. He gave you the good works that you'll be rewarded for. And then, out of his abundant love, he rewards you. Now, as you grasp that theology, God gave you salvation. He created the good works. He put the desire in you to walk in those good works. And then he rewards you for them. As you grasp that theology, you understand on that last day, he is the one that will receive all of the praise and the glory. You don't need to fear as you see this biblical reality of a heavenly reward being held out before us as a motivation. You do not need to fear. God will be praised in that last day for all that he has done. Consider with me also the nature of the reward. What will be the reward that we're given? The answer to that question is another sermon. In brief, there are many texts that talk about us receiving a crown. There are texts that intimate the enjoyment that we'll have of heaven. And wonderfully, there'll be no jealousy. There'll be no jealousy as we look to another believer that receives more because of how they live their lives, we will only celebrate. All sin will be gone and there'll be no jealousy. And so part of the reward is our experience in glory. But the foremost reward is Christ himself. The foremost reward for every believer is Christ himself. In Matthew 5, Jesus taught, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why are they blessed? Because they'll be satisfied. You see there, Jesus is speaking about a spiritual hunger Blessed are you when you hunger spiritually for righteousness. And when we were studying this text, I argued the nature of the satisfaction is a reception of that righteousness. You're blessed because one day your hunger for righteousness will be satisfied. You'll receive, step into a kingdom that is altogether righteous. Now consider again Jesus' teaching on fasting. The bridegroom is not with them, so they fast. The implication is they have a spiritual hunger to see me. They are spiritually desiring to be with their Lord. Which says the satisfaction, the reward they will receive is the object of their hunger, namely Christ. Foremost amongst every Christian's reward is Jesus himself. And when you understand that, it is no problem to set your mind on the reward, to allow it to guide your motives, 
to fast, to deny yourself, to pray, to give, to do all that Jesus commanded in a way that seeks a reward because you know that one day you will receive Christ. And so our fasting and all of our righteous deeds embody the words of the song, Come, Thou Long Expected Jesus, born to set thy people free, from our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Would you pray with me now to close? Our Father, we give you thanks for Jesus' teaching concerning the discipline of fasting. Forgive us. For our negligence. Forgive us for our apathy. Forgive us for how we have not considered the value of denying ourselves. Denying ourselves even food so as to chasten our love for this world and so as to enlarge our love for our Savior. I pray this morning that you would lead this church in the discipline of fasting, in the biblical discipline of self-denial. As we do so, Father, would you guard our motives? Do not allow us to go about our religious deeds for the praise of men. May we preach to ourselves the emptiness, the fleeting nature of men's praises. Oh, Father, give us eyes of faith to believe upon you, to believe upon your love for us, to believe upon your desire to reward us richly. And may that guide us as we desire Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.